If you would now, we will turn in our text to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, there's a mistake in the bulletin. It's verses 21 through 43, not 34. Numbers were swapped. Verses 21 to 43. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in with where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi. Which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have you ever heard of the phrase, uh, especially among Christians, God helps those who help themselves? What this phrase implies is that God only helps the strong or those who can pick themselves up by their bootstraps. 
He helps those who are smart and those who are able to think of solutions for every problem. But folks, that is a lie. That is not the God of the Bible. That phrase is not found in the Bible and it is actually rooted in Greek philosophy and Greek mythology where the gods favored the strong and the mighty. And this is also reflective of the God of Islam in the Quran. But this is not our God. We know our God is almighty in power and authority. He is mighty in battle and cannot be stopped. Yet, He is also merciful and compassionate, showing mercy to the weak and the helpless. And throughout the scriptures, He commands His people to do justice, to love kindness, And to walk humbly with our God. Because we are called to reflect our God in these ways. So far we have seen our God in Jesus Christ. We have seen Jesus' power over nature. Over demons. And now we have two more accounts. Of where Jesus demonstrates his almighty power. And unlike the false gods of the world, he uses his almighty power to show sympathy to the weak and the helpless. And these acts of Jesus were meant to do one thing. They were meant to generate one response. They were meant to draw a response of faith. And for those who already have faith, these acts were meant to increase Our faith. Here we have two people of two totally different backgrounds and social statuses bow before our Lord in desperation. They were in desperation because of the misery that sin has brought into this world. They are in desperation because of the pain, the disease, and the death that has been introduced into their lives. But these acts of desperation were at the same time acts of faith that is used as an instrument to bring life back into the equation. The question is, faith in who? Faith in who? For background, Jesus gets back on the boat And crosses back from the Decapolis, which was on the other side, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He he returns to Capernaum and a great crowd gathered around him beside the sea where he remained. Then he is approached first by Jairus. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. He, He didn't hold ecclesiastical authority. He wasn't a ruler in the same way. Uh, as an elder or a teacher. He actually watched over the grounds of the synagogue and ordered the services that took place there. So we can say he was a man of some importance and he may have been pretty well off financially. Yet it says that he saw Jesus and fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, meaning he came begging. 
This just goes to show that it doesn't matter what status you are. Rich or poor, slave or free, ruler or laborer, we will all fall at His feet someday. We will all need to call upon Jesus for help because no one can escape the reality of disease and death. And this is what he does. He begs him. He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. A desperate plea from a desperate father who trusted that if Jesus touched his daughter, she would be made well. We're not sure how much faith Jairus had, but some sort of faith was present. He he would have been there in the synagogue to hear Jesus teach, and he probably saw some of his miracle healings that he performed by his touch. That is why Jesus' touch becomes so important for him and for the others who were witnessing. There is divine power flowing through his bloodstream. There is divine power in all that Jesus is in all that he has done. We see it here in two ways. First, we see his power over disease. And secondly, we see his power over death itself. And Jairus is in a helpless state. So he begs him to come with him. And how does Jesus respond to Jairus' desperate plea? Now we must remember so far, Jesus' ministry has been difficult. Jesus has been overwhelmed. He's been tired, discouraged at times over unbelief, discouraged over the people's true motives. As we go on to see later on, he, he becomes frustrated with his own disciples over their lack of faith. But notice something. He never turns away a request that is made by faith, even by weak faith. It says he, that is Jesus, went with him. Because Jesus is easy to call, call upon. He is our refuge and our strength when we are weak. And he displays this very thing for Jairus and for all who has come to him. He is gentle with those who are suffering. Because the reality is, is that there are more weak people in the world than there are strong people in the world. Here, Jairus, who would have been viewed as strong, is brought low to a point of weakness, to a point of desperation. Because all those who claim to be strong are weak. They're just in self-denial. Because here we see probably one of the strongest among the Jews come begging to Jesus. But as they are walking toward Jairus' home, a great crowd followed him in something like a procession. And they thronged about him, pressing on him. That's what it means. 
And in that crowd, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood, a, a hemorrhage of some sort, for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. These doctors were probably ill-equipped and didn't have the knowledge probably that we have today. We have much technology and medicine um, that they didn't have. And they lacked the instruments to make her better. So she got worse. She would have been considered incurable. And at this point, she became poor because she spent all that she had on her health. She was also in a state of desperation, just like Jairus. Not only that, but this type of discharge of blood, according to the Levitical law, she would have been considered ceremonially unclean. Which means she, she would have been cut off from the worshipping community. So she would have been suffering both physically and spiritually. She was desperate. She was so desperate, she broke the ceremonial law as she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. Now there may have been some superstition behind this comment, but nevertheless, the object of faith was still there. She probably couldn't touch Jesus' hand since uh, he was being pressed upon by the crowd. So she is saying touching the garment would be enough. We know the garment itself doesn't have the power to heal. But we know who does. Because here the garment wasn't the object of faith. How do I know? It says, and immediately... The flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. A mystery indeed. This doesn't mean that this way of healing should become the norm as in many circles today. But it does leave you questioning. How does this happen? Well, what we see here is in Jesus, both his divinity and his humanity on display. It says, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, meaning he is the source of the power. The power is inherent in him because in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And whoever comes in contact with him by faith is transformed and made new. He is the walking tabernacle who has God's presence and life within him. He has the ability to heal within his human flesh. So it wasn't his garment that healed her, it was him. It was his power. But then we see his humanity. When he immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? This has led to much confusion. But we must remember that Jesus was 100% divine as well as 100% human. In his incarnation, he doesn't lose 
any of his divine attributes, and he doesn't lose any of his human attributes. Here we see he has a human nature with human limitations. So he, he asked, who touched my garments? And his disciples, without a clue, said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched my garments? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling over his glory, over his majesty, over his power, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. That is, she told him all that she had been through and how all that she had tried had failed. So Jesus turned and sought her because he wanted a public confession of all that she had been through in order to teach us what faith looks like. This was an opportunity for him to disciple her. Now, I don't think this applies to every Christian experience, but there is a sense that some of us need to be brought to a place of desperation in order to see our need, in order to reach out to Jesus. There are some of us who are so hard-hearted and cold that we need to be brought to a place like this in order to be humbled before Jesus. There are many of us who need to see our need of Him, both physically to sustain us and spiritually to revive us. And he may even use sickness and disease to bring us to a place where we have nowhere else to go but to him. I've said this before, don't think that this pandemic was just an accident. I'm convinced that this pandemic is not about politics as many people have made it to be. If politics is the first thing we think of when we consider this pandemic, that our minds are distracted from what is truly going on and distracted from the one whom we should be focused on. Maybe he's trying to get our attention. Even though sin is to blame and God is not to blame for sin. But by his sovereign decree, God is the one who brought this about. He brought it about as a warning to unbelievers of the coming judgment. And it was brought about to draw Christians closer to himself. Not to draw our minds to what is being said on the media. Of every channel. All included. It is for Christians to grow in our faith. Maybe he's trying to teach us patience. Maybe he's trying to teach us compassion for others who are sick and dying. So we ought to be careful that we do not tempt God in the face of disease and death. It was brought about so that we can trust in Him more in the midst of suffering and disease. And if we are not drawn to Him first and foremost in our minds, 
then something is terribly wrong with our faith. Because Jesus is our only refuge, our only comfort, our only hope. Going to Him is our only way to find peace and relief. And get this, He doesn't turn us away. He didn't turn her away. He didn't speak down to her the way other people may have done. He could have said, you have just made me unclean. No. That ceremonial law is set aside to save his people. Instead, as her savior, he is gentle with her. In response to this woman, after she told him everything, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, he is, he is not saying that faith has a healing mechanism in it. Meaning, you can have faith in just about anything, and it will happen. Believe you'll be healed, and you'll be healed. Uh, believe you'll be a millionaire, and you'll be a millionaire. Make it a billionaire. No. There are many who think, you know, speaking something into existence, then it will happen. Or... Thinking positively, and only positive things will happen. No, that, that's not what Jesus means. People these days have faith in, in the universe, or in karma. No, that is not what Jesus is saying. None of that is what Jesus is saying. Whenever we read Jesus say something like this, your faith has made you well, we must remember that faith has an object. Faith has an object. We should ask, what is the object of the faith that made her well? She was seeking to touch him. And the power to heal left him. Her faith was in Jesus. So he was saying, her faith in him made her well. She didn't have all the details at the time of who Jesus was because he didn't reveal it. But her faith was in the right place. In other words, Jesus made her well. His divine nature responded to her desperation. And for us, this is a a great picture of our own salvation, isn't it? Faith is used as an instrument for spiritual healing and salvation, just as it was an instrument for her physical healing. It is by faith that we stand, live, walk, and overcome trials in the Christian life. It is by faith that we have peace and enter into our final rest. And her faith was nothing more than an empty hand. Seeking everything and anything she can receive from her Savior. With nothing to give him back but a confession. Nothing to give back but a confession. That ought to be the way we approach Jesus Christ. With nothing in our hands. And nothing to give back but a confession. Because we are all in a desperate place without him as our Savior. And we will never find ultimate relief in anything or anyone else. 
So Jesus says to her, go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is another way of Jesus reaffirming that he is the one. That he is the one who healed her. And he is telling her that he is the Lord over all that is wrong in her life. And that he has power over her disease. And that he is the only one who can cleanse her totally of that disease for all eternity. That's what he meant when he said that. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. As Sinclair Ferguson says, she came for healing and found grace. She found grace. How many of us are seeking this type of relief for good? And nothing you have tried has made it better. In fact, we feel worse when we try to do it ourselves. I'm not just speaking about physical healing. I'm speaking about spiritual as well. We think of legalism, moralism, trying to make things right with God in our own power, within our own ability, with our own ideas, in our own strength. We find no relief in any of it, do we? The only way out of this vicious cycle of trying to live alone without God is to submit to the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, as this woman does here. That is the only way to find true peace and healing. Go to Him, beg Him, and know this, He is not troubled by your requests. So secondly, now that what has just occurred was an interruption to Jairus' plans of getting Jesus back to his house to save his daughter from death. But what is going on here was not by mistake. Jesus was trying to teach Jairus a lesson here. He was trying to teach Jairus a lesson in compassion. See, compassion and mercy were characteristics that the Jewish leaders lacked. And whether it was Jairus himself or the leaders that he was accustomed to watching and following, Jesus was trying to teach him something other than what he was used to. It was another opportunity for discipleship. And the irony is that Jairus' daughter had been alive just as long as the woman had been suffering from the hemorrhage. Twelve years. She was only twelve years old. But while Jesus was healing and speaking to the woman, Jairus' daughter was dying from her sickness. Imagine what was going on through Jairus' head. Time is limited. We need to get there right now. What are you doing, Jesus? Then this happens. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Now this has often been viewed as a command. Do not fear, only believe. Well, no. 
That's not, not all this is. This, this wasn't a rebuke. Just like when Jesus says, do not be anxious. It wasn't a rebuke. This is an encouragement. In the face of naysayers who were saying, too late. Your daughter is dead. Let the teacher go home. Don't bother him for his services anymore. They were inconsiderate of what Jairus has lost and his desperate attempt of relief. And they didn't know who the teacher really was. Because for Jairus, all hope was now lost. This happens to us all too frequently when we see our own condition or the condition of our churches or the condition of our loved ones. We can fall into a place of despair where we will conclude all hope is lost. But times of desperation ought to be used as a time where we stop hoping in the securities of this world and let, us, let it drive us to trust in Jesus Christ more. Because our faith will only grow through testing. It doesn't grow by a triumphalist view of our own faith. Oh, I have faith. I can go through anything until the worst happens. I've seen in my short years of ministry, the strongest of Christians cry and weep over their desperate situation. Jairus' faith was being tested and he was driven to trust in Jesus and in what he was there to do. So Jesus set him aside and said, this is no trouble for me. This is no trouble for me. Do not fear because of what they have said. Because of what the world has said. Keep your eyes on me. Only believe. Ignore them. That's what he's saying. It wasn't a command. It was an encouragement. This is what he says to us when all people around us are turning away from Jesus and his ways. He's saying, ignore them. Don't follow them. I'm here. And I hear your requests. Do not fear. Only believe. But the world is plummeting into chaos. Do not fear, only believe. And never stop going to Jesus for your needs. You can never trouble him too much. You are not a bother to him. Approach him by faith. He lives to make intercession for us while we are still on this earth. He calls him to believe, but the question is, believe in what? See, Jesus doesn't give a command or an encouragement and walk away. He also demonstrates that he is trustworthy, doesn't he? He is worth believing in. So he called on his inner circle, that is his closest disciples. These are the same disciples who will go with him on a private meeting later on, on a mountain. Peter, James, and John. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Uh, Some of them may have been family, but also since Jairus was stable financially, uh, some may have been hired or rented to weep 
and wail as was the custom in Israel for those who were mourning. And when Jesus entered the house, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, he is sleeping. Now, considering a lot of them were probably hired, he he wasn't trying to teach us insensitivity towards death. He makes light of the situation, not because death is not serious. So, uh, one of the worst things we can do is try to apply this text and go into a funeral and say, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. That is not what Jesus is trying to teach us here. That is not what he's trying to teach us here. He makes light of the situation, not because death is not serious, but because of who he is. But because of who he is. Instead of being dead, she is just sleeping. But for us, that makes no difference, right, in our experience. Death is still horrible, and we are cut off from the people we love. It doesn't really make a difference on this side of the world. What Jesus is trying to say by saying she is just sleeping is that death, the word death, means there is no more life. But she, this girl, can still be woken up. This way of speaking about death as just sleeping is common in the Old Testament scriptures. And it is meant to communicate that we will continue to live even after we die physically. God has prepared another place for us to exist. And he originally created our bodies and souls to live forever in fellowship with him. For Christians, when we die, it is a state of rest or sleeping until we are raised again. But what was their response? What was their response? They laughed at him. They laughed at the notion That she is not actually dead. This is a large group of naysayers. We have a lot of naysayers in this world. We have those who laugh at Christians because we believe that life is not, life does not end here. They laugh because we know that God has prepared a place for us to live eternally. But we ought to be careful because many times we can be naysayers as well. We can have uh, a disagreeable spirit. When someone comes around and claims that God has worked mightily in their lives, we tend to question it. We laugh it off. Maybe because we haven't submitted to Christ ourselves and experienced the blessing of trusting in Him. So we may have been part of this group questioning Jesus' logic. We may have had a similar reaction to what Jesus just said and laugh it off. We would have been thinking, feel her body. It's cold. It's stiff. She's not sleeping. She's not even breathing. That means she's dead. Little did they know that they were in the presence of the Lord of life. They were in the presence of the author of life, the one who created life. So what was Jesus' response to their response of laughter? He kicked them out. He kicked them out of Jairus' house. He put them outside. 
He separated the naysayers from the family of the little girl and the apostolic eyewitnesses that he chose. He was in a way protecting the family from the grumblers and takes them aside privately to be with their daughter. Another lesson in compassion here. And he took her by the hand and said, Talitha kumi, which is Aramaic, for little girl I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Thomas Wenandi, the famous Roman Catholic scholar, says that Jesus performed human actions divinely and divine actions humanly. You can sort that out in your mind on your own time. But here he used human words and human touch and they had divine effects. He would have been considered unclean, but little does anyone know that nothing can defile the presence of God. Rather, the presence of God cleanses us from all uncleanness. We see Jesus becoming Jesus, meaning Jesus living out what his name means here. The one who saves. God who saves. He just spoke and the girl was returned to life in full health. He used human words. And it had divine effects. He even told, her, told them to get her something to eat because she was probably hungry. Death works up an appetite. Jesus is demonstrating that he has power over death as the Lord who brings forth life by his command. He is saying that death is not stronger than him and Jairus' hope is now restored. And in light of his power over disease and death, our faith and hope ought to be strengthened and restored as well. And in light of his power over disease and death, our faith ought to be strengthened, made sure as we rely upon the solid rock who is Jesus our Lord. Because Jesus by his spirit continues to do this very work by raising dead souls to life today. And this is a picture of what is coming for all who believe in him. And all of our weeping over those whom we have lost in this world. Will one day turn to rejoicing. And amazement does not do justice to the the emotion they must have felt. Yet he strictly charged them to keep it a secret. He didn't want the popularity just yet. But also he had three of his apostolic witnesses. Because you need three eyewitnesses to confirm a story. Right? And these three will one day preach about this very day in the future. As recorded in the book of Acts. And through that preaching he will lay the foundation of the church. So in these acts of salvation, Jesus is demonstrating for us how he, in his humanity, is taking on the consequences of sin 
disease, and death. And he will finally share in our death on the cross and take away death when he is risen from the dead for us. He is the Lord who will deal with these human problems once and for all. And one day, he will take us by the hand and say, Arise. As he promised, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And there, evil, sickness, and death will cease to exist. There will be no more pandemic. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more heart attacks. So first, are you in despair this morning, not knowing where to turn to? Is it because of the state you're in? Maybe you don't have the answers to all the problems that you are facing. Where will you turn to to find rest and peace? Where is your hope? We must be reminded that Jesus has power over all lost causes. When we think it is all over, life will be restored by His command. And secondly, do you believe that He will raise you from the dead in light of all of the naysayers that say there is no God and that there is no life beyond beyond the grave? What is your response to what Jesus has done? Do you scoff and laugh at him? Or will you bend the knee with empty hands, willing to receive life from our Savior? Because as it says in the scriptures, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And on that glorious day, he will raise us up by his power. Amen.